Hey guys, DJ here. This is a disclaimer. Applied Materials is a 100% non-profit fan project set within the Orpheus Protocol game system. The Orpheus Protocol is an actual play podcast and tabletop role-playing game system created by Rob Stith and published by Varkalak Press. If you'd like to know more, please check out the podcast at www.orpheusprotocol.com and patreon.com slash orpheusprotocol if you'd like to show more support for the main show. A link to the main show will be provided in the episode description down below. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy the following episode. Welcome to Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. My name is DJ, and I will be your host for tonight. On the cast list for our journey into the unknown, Paxton as Elias Manusos, Jens as Leighton Oswald. Tonight's episode... Hunter and the Hunted, Part 2. Hunter and the Hunted contains violence, cold winter nights, and the crossing of paths. Consider this your warning. Previously on Applied Materials, Leighton Oswald, home nurse living in Browning, Montana, comes to grips with the strange violence affecting their home. Meanwhile, Elias has sated his hunger, at least for now, and considers a new target for his hunt. It's been about maybe three, four days since then, and although you've kept to the surrounding wilderness around Browning, you've still been hungry for human flesh. And although you have been supping, as it were, on local fauna, like the occasional deer, sometimes maybe even two deer or a small fox, the local wildlife have not been pacifying your hunger. And so you've had to return to Browning to feast on more of the local populace, as it were. And so I would like you to describe another victim that you've found wandering the streets late at night in Browning that became your next meal. Elias has been trying to keep to the edges of town as much as possible. He thinks that there's a chance if he can avoid people entirely, uh, maybe that hunger will go away. But he has always been a man of the city. He is not prepared to actually rough it out there. And so he thought, oh, maybe if I can just go to this truck stop late at night, I can uh, grab a shower there, maybe maybe steal some, some goods that will make my unplanned camping trip here a little more comfortable. And so he, he went there very late at night, thinking there would be basically no one there. Maybe a cashier, but that would be safe, right? They're indoors. There's lights and security cameras. I can control myself for this long. And he did, uh, admirably. But as soon as he stepped back outside and he saw that, he saw a truck idling out in the parking lot and a lone man just barely climbing out of the cab and walking toward that same truck stop. And in that moment, uh, Elias, he lost control again. 
But it wasn't a complete loss of control. He knew what he was doing. Or he knew what he was doing enough to be careful about it. And so he rushed over there quickly and quietly, got the man's attention asking for help, got him away from wherever the the cameras were pointing in this parking lot, and then, just like the first victim, bit the man's throat out and gorged himself upon his victim's blood. And it is this killing, this second victim, that has sparked a serious and thorough police investigation throughout the town. And as we enter this new scene, the night lights of Browning, Montana, against the stark, starry night, you are, well, somewhere observing the city, as usual, and... In the time that it's been since these first two killings, you have seen the police presence in Browning increase rather significantly. The cops have taken to doing night patrols now around the town, and so it is one of these cop cars you see driving around the outskirts of town, occasionally blaring its sirens for about a second or two, perhaps maybe to scare off either local wildlife like Nocturnal predators like mountain lions or bears that might come wandering into town just on a whim. Or to discourage potential murderers from trying to get their next victim. Unfortunately, they never really counted on the fact that, well, this particular serial killer is a supernatural vampire. And so, you decide to sate your hunger once again and make the perilous journey into the town of Browning, Montana. And so I'd like you to make me a stealth check with your dexterity, please. Um, let's see. Uh, is the intention of this check just to be like my long-term stealth then? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. My dexterity is two. I have four ranks in stealth. Let's see, I got a flat on the dice. I will activate my uh, A rank stealth ability to treat that as a plus one. And then I will spend I will spend one strain to turn that into a four. So with a four, you are mostly successful in avoiding the cops. You have a few very close shaves where you are weaving through narrow alleyways or attempting to cross the street. And because you aren't totally human, you catch a glimpse of headlights coming down the road, and so you need to duck behind a wall or dive into a bush to escape whoever it is that's coming down the road. Most times it ends up being the cops. Sometimes it's just another random citizen that is just up late at night for some reason. And as you're prowling through town, I would like you to make me an investigation check with your perception to find your next victim. Ooh, this is going to be tough. However, I am getting hungry, aren't I? Okay. So that is flat on the dice. My perception is a one. I will spend one strain to get that to, or the one strain I can get for untrained to get that to a two. And I think I will actually use my motivation of I carry the memories of those I consume because I want to find someone worthy of uh, the immortality that death by my fangs gives them. Uh, That is only a one, so that comes out to be a three. It's going to take me a while, I think. It does take you quite a while. 
it is rather late at night, and so you don't really expect a lot of the local populace to be out this time of night, except for maybe a few younger part, uh, younger party goers or night drinkers, as it were, at the local watering hole. But you don't quite smell or sense a lot of these alcohol-ridden types throughout the town, probably because of the local police and their efforts into and their efforts into trying to reduce the number of people that are out late at night so that they can prevent more victims from turning up. It takes you a long time to find your next victim, long enough that your hunger has started to take hold over your more logical, sensible parts of your mind, the ones that make you you and not just a mindless, starving predator. However you do find what might seem to be your next meal. As you're prowling around the center of town, you head north and find a set of houses just two blocks off of the main thoroughfare and the main highway that cuts through Browning. And you see a man sitting on the porch of his house. The bright tip of a cigarette is very clearly visible sticking out of his mouth, and you can see that he has a rather blocky-looking military-issue assault rifle sitting on his lap. But he doesn't smell completely human. And as you stare this man down from your perch on a nearby rooftop, you can see that one of his legs isn't very, well, leg-shaped. In fact, it looks more like a scythe than anything else, and you realize, well, at least the human part of you realizes that that is a, well, a prosthetic leg. He looks to be middle-ish age, probably either mid to late 30s, pushing 40. And this guy is, well, sitting on his porch. He appears to be, well, awake for the most part, and is occasionally slowly turning his head from left to right, just scanning up and down the street probably looking out for something, or someone. Might be you. You don't know. He's isolated, though. There is no one else out on the street at this time of night. You take a glance up and down the road, trying to observe some of the nearby houses. Pretty much all of them have their lights turned off, including his. But you're not quite sure why his lights are off when he's sitting on the porch. So, tactical information. Am I one area away from him, would you say? So you're perched on the roof of a house just across the street from him. Okay, that means I'm probably one area away, not in the same area as him. So your area would be the house that you're standing or sitting on top of, and his area is his house. The street divides you. Absolutely. I'm just just running some numbers about how long it'll take me to get to him and stuff. If there's no one in sight other than this man, Elias really needs this man's blood. He's so hungry. He's never felt so cold and hungry and yet so feverish and jittery in his whole life. The febrile twitching veins that stretch across his body are all reaching subtly in the direction of this of this man's body heat. And Elias knows that if he doesn't do this the smart way, then eventually his body will force him to do it the savage way. And so 
I'm going to start off by activating rank one bearer of plagues targeting this man. Elias lets out a low, uncanny whistle, and a swarm of vermin, mostly rats and large beetles, converge upon this man. Let me see. This is my knowledge eldritch versus, versus his athletics dexterity. I have five willpower. I rolled plus two on the dice. I will spend one spiritual strain. No, I'll spend two spiritual strain to get that to a nine. So your victim takes 1d3 health damage that cannot be prevented by non-magical means. Yes, I am also going to spend a blood point to give myself two degrees of success on that so I can uh, make it happen again two more times. Uh, The the next two times he acts, uh, the damage will repeat. And that will cost you four spiritual strain. Or two blood points. I'm going to spend two strain and a blood point. So the first one that happens immediately, I rolled flat, so that's a two. So this blanket of beetles and rats sort of seethe out of crevices and cracks. You can tell that there's not a lot of them because this is a small neighborhood and not a giant city. So you're not quite getting the full extent of what this power of yours can call, but there are still a bunch of large rats and more than a handful of obnoxious beetles that swarm from underneath houses and within holes in the ground. They converge on your location, and as you gesture towards the guy sitting on his porch, they flow in a seething mass towards this man. He doesn't notice it immediately, but... The first thing he sees is a rat lunging for his face, and it latches onto his nose, kind of comically. He yelps and immediately swipes it off with one hand, and that's when he sees the rest of the vermin heading his way. With blood trickling down his nose, you can see the man from his position on the porch. He stands up and immediately bolts back into the house. And over the sounds of skittering feet and beating insect wings, you can hear his door lock. And I would now like you to roll for initiative. Flat on the dice gives me eight initiative. Well, Elias, you're going first. Excellent. I am going to activate polymorphism rank one, and I'm going to use my rank three passive to transform into a bat for one initiative. Then if it is still my turn, I am going to take a movement action to get to and try to get into his house. Okay, so to move from the roof that you are sitting on to the front door of this guy's house, I would like you to roll an athletics check with your speed, please. My speed is a 2 normally. I get a plus 2 for my bat shape. I roll flat on the dice. Okay, in that case, I will use my rank 3 reroll. That is worse, so I guess I'll keep the flat on the dice. I will spend 2 strain to get me to a 6, so it will only take me 2 initiative to get to the front door of his house. All right. Elias, it's still your turn. (laughs) Okay, that kind of sucks, because the point of Bearer of Plagues is to soften him up, 
before I can get to him. And if he doesn't take any actions at all before I get to him, then that damage isn't going to happen quite yet, is it? Anyway, that's enough belly aching. What kind of action would you require for me to get into the house? Well, it depends. Do you want to attempt to circumvent the lock? That would be an analog security check with your dexterity. You want to break the door down? Might check with vitality. Let's see. Is there any option of sneaking in while I am very small currently? That one would be another investigation check. Actually, no. That would be an awareness check with your perception to see if you can find spots in just the front of the house that you'll be able to sneak into, either as a rat or some other small thing. In that case, I will... I don't think it takes any initiative to shift back into person shape. Elias flies across the street uh, as quickly as, uh, as a bat in flight, of course. And by the time he reaches the front door, he is already in his mostly human shape. Uh, his, uh, his feet touch the porch. Um, can I use athletics as a uh, related skill there? Sure, why not? Awesome. It's not that much better, but it's a little better. Uh, he is already shoving his shoulder into the man's door. Wow, lots of... I mean, I guess that's what these dice are for. Uh, vitality 3, flat on the dice. I will spend 2 strain to get myself to a 5. Okay. It takes you a little bit because as you're shoving your shoulder into this guy's door, you're realizing that it is not as flimsy as some of the other doors you've seen in this neighborhood. You expected, for the most part, for this to be a screen door and then just like a flimsy wooden door. But as your shoulder slams into the wood of this door again and again and again, you find that it is an arduous task. However, with your enhanced strength, you do feel the door start to give way. And as you rear back and slam your shoulder once more into this door, it splinters and gives way. With a loud crash, you stumble forwards slightly into the front hallway of this guy's home. And you are instantly greeted by a staccato burst of gunfire as he levels his assault rifle at you and shoots. So I'd like for you to set me either a like some sort of range defense, like a dodge or something else. Um, so at the start of his turn, he takes another two damage from the uh, the bearer of plagues, by the another way. Another beetle bites him on the ear, ow. Anyway, my defense, well, I'm using my, uh, my active role. I'm going to spend some more of this combat strain and get to a six. Unfortunately, you fail. Excellent. The man is getting three degrees of success on you. So, Elias, you are taking nine slash four and four slash four as two rather big rifle rounds pound through your chest. The first bullet destroys Elias's left lung. The second bullet destroys his heart. Then the tendrils about his body all writhe. And I take, I lose one humanity and take two stress sanity damage. So before Elias's body 
has hit the floor. The myriad tendrils stretched across his body stretch and judder, and they pierce his body at multiple or from multiple directions, removing the bullet and reconstructing his vital organs. Um, as I activate rank one machinations of the timeless and stand or stand up again, completely unharmed. Oh, (laughs) well, shit. So as you quite literally pull yourself back together from somewhere within the shadows of the house, you can't quite tell where this voice comes from, but you hear someone, probably the man shouting, Get the fuck off my property, bitch! You set foot in here, you're gonna die! And now it is both your turn and his turn. What's your initiative stat? Uh, eight. You're going first. Excellent. I am going to... Because I want to get close to him before things really kick off. And by that I mean before the beginning of the next round. That means um, I am going to close to melee with him i think well you gotta find him first buddy oh you want me to do a a find him first okay in that case let me see how that changes my plans uh to find him would that be like an awareness active role in order to find your quarry or your next meal i would like you to make me an awareness check with your perception please i really need to switch out these dice I i have one perception and three ranks of awareness I guess I will use my rank 3 reroll. Ooh, that actually is a plus 3 rather than a flat. So that puts me at a 4. And then I will spend 3 strain. Yeah, we're- I want to find him as soon as possible. So I will spend all 3 strain here to get to a 7. All right. With a 7, you hone your supernaturally enhanced senses as you try and locate this man in wherever he might be hiding. You don't know where he shouted from because this house is a small one-story affair and so the sound sort of echoes throughout this place, not really giving you an accurate picture of where he might be. But you do have other senses. Some of the veiny tendrils on your arm are waving in the air, scenting for his body heat. And as your stood there in the front door of his house. Some of the tendrils turn to your right. All right, I am going to follow my senses and uh, try to use my remaining initiative to close with him. Okay, so that's a charge, which means I would like you to roll another athletics check with your speed. Indeed. Too bad I had to turn back into a human. I guess I could have gone uh, dog mode again. That would have been fun. Did I use my athletics reroll earlier? Yes, I did. I am going to use my... I'm going to activate my principle. As long as I survive, I can try again. That gives me a one, but that's enough. Um, I spent three physical strain, plus one from my principle, plus two from my speed is a six, which means it will only take me two initiative to get to him. All right which means your next attack is at a minus one to hit. At the beginning of his turn now, he takes the last d3 damage from Bearer of Plagues. Ow. But I rolled flat on it again, so that's just another two. You bound towards where your body senses this heat, this fear, and the smell of blood. 
that has been drawn from the vermin that swarm into this guy's house. And as you round the corner, the first right that you see at the end of this hallway, you come into what appears to be a small but stately and spartan kitchen. And, well, there he is, behind a table upturned onto its side, using it as some sort of rudimentary cover, with the barrel of his assault rifle pointed at the door, and as you storm in, he fires. So I would like you to set me another range defense. Absolutely. My evade is pretty bad, like we've established. I will spend a bunch more physical strain. I've already used my active role. I am going to use my bond to my handler and the Orpheus organization as general in general to uh, try to tap into the small amount of training I got for these situations back in the day. That is a two, so that puts me at a six again. Would you like to spend a strain to break the tie? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I'll do that. I am so low on physical strain, this is delicious. You are on the hunt. You are in search of your next prey, and so all of your senses are heightened to the point of almost overstimulation. So when you round the corner and see just the barrel of an assault rifle peeking out at you from above a table, before he can fire, you duck back behind the wall as his finger closes on the trigger and lets off another staccato burst of rifle fire that thuds into the wall. And now I would like you to roll for initiative again, because we are at the bottom of the round and it's a new round. Excellent. That is flat on the dice again, putting me at eight. Elias, it's your turn. Excellent. At the beginning of the round, Void Tendrils rank three passive. I roll one die. Aw, rip. I don't get any free attacks. However, I I'm pretty low on physical strain now, aren't I? That's okay. This should not take too long. We are activating Void Tendrils rank one to make a melee attack using my Knowledge Eldritch skill. I'm going to use my rank 3 reroll. There we go, that could say plus 1. Okay, I rolled 1, 2, 3, 4. That's not great, but it's what I got. Well, you pass with 1 degree of success. Excellent. So that is a 5 slash 0 damage then. I'm glad I started this the smart way instead of just charging in. The veiny tendrils from your arms and your body dart forward and like spears slam through the brittle wood of this coffee table. And you see that you have struck him in several places, impaling his flesh with the sharp pointed teeth at the ends of these veins that sink into his flesh, and by proxy, you can taste him. He tastes of fear, but more so, anger. And how that using Void Tendrils is how many initiative? Oh, it's two. It's your turn again. <laughs> I Again, I rolled chiddily for his initiative, so... I am pretty tapped out on my physical resources here. Because I had to spend so many just getting to him. That's so funny. Fortunately, I have more than that. After getting this first taste of his victim's blood, Elias loses control. And his body changes once again into something much more suitable for hunting prey. There's a part of him that wonders, why, 
why didn't I do this to begin with? And I activate rank two polymorphism with and spend the additional humanity to change for just one initiative into his uh, canid wolf shape. Okay, that's your action, right, for this turn? Yeah, that was one initiative. So taking one initiative, that drops you down to self five. So now both of you are acting together, and he is trying to, well, rip the tendrils out of his chest, and he has dropped the rifle and is now lunging at you with a knife. So this is a clash. Okay. Elias, now in wolf form, attacks with his knowledge eldritch and his willpower attribute, which means willpower at five plus one on the dice, plus three spiritual strain, is a nine. So you win by three degrees of success. So you're taking no damage, and your damage is being increased by 2d3, because he's got two toughness. Uh, my damage in wolf form, my damage is eight slash two. I have 2d3s to add to it. They both got threes. Um, so that puts me at 14 slash 2 damage as Elias lunges at this man's throat. And I would like you now to describe the mess you make of this man's kitchen as you eat him alive. Surprisingly, there isn't very much blood. Or at least, there isn't very much left. Elias's jaws close on this man's throat, and Elias's weight bears them both down to the ground. And like the mycelial network of some predatory fungus, Elias's uh, vein tendrils all plunge into this man's flesh. But unlike those peaceful pseudo-roots. These ones move, and they tear, and they burrow, seeking the warm, metallic nectar that will keep Elias alive, that will keep him moving. By the time Elias, the creature, is done feeding, the man's corpse is a wreck, covered in puncture wounds and tears, bits of flesh and gristle uh, scattered around the, or about the floor around him, and the tiny lamprey-like mouths that now stud Elias's tentacles are gently questing across the floor of the room, sipping up any little beads or drops of blood that scattered along with them. And as you sate your bestial hunger, you come out of this fugue and see the mess you've made. The man's body is a desiccated husk, blood, or what's left of his blood, slowly leaking from the multiple holes that you've left in him. And on the wind, you can hear the sirens, people talking, shouting at each other across the street, and you can smell fear panic. The sirens are getting closer, and you know you have to make your quick escape. And so, you burst out the kitchen window and lope into the night, hoping, praying, maybe, that none of the neighbors have seen what you've done. 
as you vanish into the tree line at the edge of town. Leighton, it's been about a couple of days since the first murder and learning about it while you were on your daily routine. There has been a second murder since then. You don't know the exact details, but the body was found in a similar condition to the first murder victim. They were found in a different location in the town, but circumstances were fairly similar. They were when they were isolated and alone, and the body was not discovered until the early morning when someone ran across it. It's been a couple of days since then, and other than the town police being in a bit of a tizzy, life has been pretty much as per normal. The only difference to your normal routine now is that you occasionally see more police cars patrolling the street. Either a single patrol car cruising around occasionally blaring their sirens and flashing lights every couple of minutes, or policemen just doing foot patrols or on horses ambling through the city streets. The air in Browning has gotten noticeably tense. There is an undercurrent of fear that is going through this town. You don't quite know why this is all happening, but you know that this is something very strange. That two bodies in the last five, six days perhaps, have shown up bearing similar injuries, similar cause of death, similar times of night. At first you thought it was some sort of predator, but now you're not so sure it's even an animal that's doing it, especially given your, well, unique propensities. And so you wake up today, it is the end of the week, and you still have some medical errands to run for your patients. It is otherwise life as per normal. What do you do? I think the first thing Nathan would do is um, check with James, considering he's probably a bit worried about the situation as well. And they kind of decided that it wasn't an animal, but Nathan figures that the rangers must be uh, on edge as well. You stumble out of your bedroom, yawning, rubbing sleep out of your eyes as you head towards the kitchen to get yourself some breakfast. It's the weekend, so someone else is on duty at the park ranger office, leaving James here in the kitchen, well, frying up some bacon and making some toast. And he sees you walking in, and he gives you a wave and a smile, and he says, ah, Good morning, Leighton. Sleep well? Hey, morning, James. Well, you know, we, we could all do with better sleep, I figure. How are you holding up? Doing pretty good, I guess. I mean, local police has got me looking out for mountain lions, of all things, but I don't know, Leighton. I really don't know. I've never actually seen this kind of thing happen in Browning before. Like, they had me down at the police station looking at these bodies to see if I could identify the animal that caused it. Yeah, Leighton figures they haven't seen any spirits of murder victims running around this place. It seemed like a calm town, so they not. And James, yeah, we kind of figured it couldn't be a mountain lion. And bears were hibernating now, you said? What, what do you think is going on? In all honesty, Leighton, I don't know. In all of my years being a park ranger, what, 20, 30 years now? We've had animal attacks. We've had bear attacks. We've had mountain lions. But I've never seen anything like this before. They, these, these people, they were... It's like they were like a juice box and they got sucked dry, you know? Do you think it might be, well, you know, 
something other than an animal. Oh, what you mean, like a Wendigo, like those old, uh, our old traditions, all those myths and stories. Well, when when I came here, you did tell me about them. You know, the Wendigos, the Skinwalkers, but just doesn't seem doesn't seem right. You know. I mean, Skinwalkers are Skinwalkers, but I don't think our local Wendigo treat people like. Soda cans, like they don't just suck them dry. When they go in our culture, they eat the flesh as well, not just drink the blood. You know everyone around this town. Do you think anyone would be capable of doing something like this? He kind of rubs his chin for a moment as he flips over a slice of toast in a pan, and he says, "Not that I'm aware of, but then again, I'm not exactly." Out in town, most of the time, you know, out in the ranger station, most of the people I see are tourists. Nathan puts up a hand in an apologetic manner. I'm sorry, James. I don't want to, you know, offend you. You know, everyone's been here for such a long time. Like you said, maybe it's maybe it's a tourist. Maybe, but I don't think we've had anyone come in that fits the bill.、Um, but I. You know, you know what? I could just check, you know, because we keep logs of all the travelers and tourists that come into the park pretty much every day. So I could go back to the office on Monday and see about looking for anyone that's staying in town for an extended duration. Just you know, look at them and see if、uh, the local PD can turn up any criminal records or something with the names I provide them. I mean, I could do that. It wouldn't be that hard, but it'd be a bit strange. Well, you know, from stories, these kind of people never really fit the bill, do they? Yeah, you're telling me. Look, just stay safe out there, all right, Leighton. Don't stay out too late. <laughs> I wasn't planning on. He shoots you a little finger gun, and then he points to the pan and he says, "Wants a bacon?" Ah,、uh, no, I'm fine. They grab an apple from the bowl on the table. Think I'll just stick with some vitamins today. He chuckles, and as you head out of the kitchen, you can hear him faintly mumble in a rather amused tone, "Buzzkill." <laughs> and so you hop back onto your bike and make your way over to the Smith's residence. The cycle is normal, apart from one of the local PD cruisers briefly blaring their siren at you and flashing its headlights. And then you see the cop inside give you a friendly little wave. You recognize this guy. He's one of the local patrol officers that lives in town. You don't really know what his name is, but he is a regular enough face around town that you sort of know him by association. Layton will definitely put up the hand in greeting as well. Give them a nod. You can see him give you a nod back through the windshield, and you carry on. You reach the Smith's residence at round about your usual time, and since it's a weekend, Nora is home as well. It's the early morning, and you're here to make sure that Paul has taken his medicine. You know that Nora is of sound mind enough to take her own medicine as well, and you pretty much check on her every weekend just to make sure she's doing all right. Well, Nathan is going to ring the doorbell, be that let in by them, and、uh, greet Nora. Ask her how her week's been. Nora greets you at the door. She is this slightly frumpy-looking old lady, probably late sixties. You can see that in one hand she's holding a tray of cookies that smell just freshly baked, so good, very very tempting. 
and she smiles as she leads you into her kitchen and she answers your question that she's been fine. The week was pretty okay apart from the little grocery run that she had to do. She hasn't really left home. Paul's been all right. And as you enter the kitchen, you can see him sitting there in front of an empty plate, finishing up, well, his breakfast. Hey, good morning, Paul. He gives you a little wave and he says, Oh, good morning, Leighton. How are you doing? I hope you've been well, uh, especially with all the hullabaloo that's been going on outside. I'm fine, you know me. I just keep on going. Yes, well, try not to stress yourself out, okay? There's... Something weird going on in town, and it's got a lot of people on edge, like my wife here. Nora kind of shakes her head and pats Paul on the shoulder, and she says, Oh, you know me, I'll be fine. I'd rarely leave the house anyway as is. Yeah, you folk have been here for a long time, and as far as I've heard, things like this don't really happen around here. Must be a shock for both of you. Nora sits down, and she nods, kind of smooths out her blouse, and she says... Yes, we've lived in this town all our lives, and quite frankly, nothing like this has ever happened before. I mean, there's been the odd murder or two, mostly motivated by passion, you know, like those TV shows that he likes to watch. But I've not really heard of this kind of thing happening before. Have you? She looks at Paul. The old man shrugs, shakes his head, and he says, "Eh, I mean, not really. Our town is so out of the way we're not exactly very prone to crazy people wandering in and you know killing a bunch of people it's strange yeah never seen anything like it later not hey i'm sure they'll catch whoever is doing this i already saw a patrol on my way here and remember you can talk to me about this if you have any concerns as well it's also part what i do you know Nora nods and she places a hand on your shoulder and she says, Oh, don't worry, dear. If anything comes up, we have your number on speed dial. (laughs) Nathan laughs and uh, nods at that. Well, that's good to know. She then gestures to the tray of cookies. This close, you can see that they're chocolate chip. And she says, Want one? Oh, God. Oh, this was supposed to be a health day. Oh, screw it. Leighton is going to take one. (laughs) You take one. It is slightly cinnamon-y, nice and sweet, semi-sweet chocolate. For a moment, you are just sinking into sugary bliss as you bid farewell to the Smiths and walk out the door. You hop back onto your bike, and your next destination is Eric Johnston's house. Your visit to Eric's house today is mostly to check on the surgical wounds again and to make sure that he's just taking his medicine and to see if he's got anything new, since he did tell you he was gonna look into some stuff while you were away taking care of other people, and he has some connections and whatnot. You cycle up to his house, and I would like to know what your vigilance is. Let's see. Well, standard, it's only two. (laughs) As you bike up to Eric's house... The first thing that catches your attention is the presence of two squad cars outside of the house, just parked on the street. Their lights are on, but there's nothing, no sound. But you can see the policemen sort of ambling around the street. One of them appears to be questioning one of the neighbors. 
and there is a ring of yellow police tape around Eric's house. As you're getting closer, one of the officers notices you on your bike and he strides towards you, holds out a hand, palm forward, facing you, and he says, Sorry, uh, police business. I'm going to have to ask you to stop right there. Nathan is going to pause with the bike, not at the officer. I understand it's it's my patient's house you're, you're at. It's, do you need my assistance in any way? Your patient's house? He looks down at a notebook in his hand and he kind of scratches his head with the back of a pencil. You see a look of recognition kind of dawn over his face and he says, Oh, you must be the home nurse, Leighton Oswald, right? They not. Yeah, that's me. Is, is everything all right? I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but late last night, one of the neighbors found Mr. Eric Johnson dead. Roll a horror check, please. Oh, fuck. <laughs> stability with willpower. My willpower is at five. And I have stability up to an A rank. So currently I'm at five. I'll spend two strain and make that a seven. You pass, standing to lose four preventable sanity damage. This is horrifying. Of all the things that you thought you were going to encounter today, you weren't expecting one of your patients to end up dead. No, I wasn't. It happens, not in this kind of way. <laughs> Nathan is just going to stand there for a while. Okay, well, I have two force of will. So that means you can spend one spiritual strain to soak three sanity damage. So with this check, you can spend two spiritual strain and be fine. Yes, we are going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. The officer is looking at you like he's expecting you to say something. And then he says, Leighton, it's going to be standard police procedure. But since you have been in close proximity to the victim for the longest period of time here, you're going to have to come with us to the station to answer a few questions, if um, that is okay with you. Uh, yeah, no, of course, I I completely understand. Just let me know whatever you need from me. Okay, well, you can answer a question first. The most pertinent one, anyway. Where were you last night? Nathan thinks for a bit. Well, I did my usual rounds, and then I went home and pretty much just went right to bed. Do you have anyone that can corroborate that? Do you live with anyone? They nod. Yeah, you should, could check with uh, James and Nora. I, I live at their place there. You know, their son moved out, so I took his room. The officer nods and he says, Ah, okay, so you live with the park ranger. Cool, duly noted. Now, I know this is going to sound kind of strange, but has the victim, Eric, talked to you about anything strange lately? Has he been behaving off or weird these last few days that you've noticed? In this case, Nate's brows are going to raise. I think everyone is acting a little bit differently lately with everything going, going on, don't you think? Oh yeah, you and me both. It's not a good look, but it's this is police procedure, so... Well, I know Eric was trying to look into a few things, see if he could figure out what was going on, but otherwise, nothing out of the ordinary, medically speaking, at least. 
The officer nods and he says, Okay, well, I think you were his closest, well, next of kin. Contacting the family is going to take some time and they're going to have to come all the way out here to identify the remains, but I can talk with my sergeant, see if we can clear you to go and have a look and see whether it's really him. Uh, slow nod there. Probably a little gulp. These things are never easy, even when a patient isn't murdered. You always have to brace yourself a bit for going into that room. The officer nods and he gestures for you to wait where you are as he walks back to his patrol car, a hand on his radio, and he a hand on his radio, and you can hear him talking into it. You wait for a few moments and then you can see the officer turn around and gesture at you with a come hither motion, waving at you with his hand. Nathan is going to put their bike on a stand and walk over to the officer. As you approach the patrol car, you can see that standing next to it is another burlier looking officer. This middle-aged man you know as one of the sergeants in the county sheriff department here. He extends a hand to you and he says, he extends a hand to you for you to shake. And he says, Leighton, sorry for your loss. I know you and... Eric and there weren't particularly close, but he was one of yours, and uh, kinda hurts. Nathan takes hand. He shakes it, warm, firm. You can tell that he doesn't quite have the words to express what he's trying to say. So, so instead, he jerks his head towards the house, and he says, "Neighbors complained. Neighbors called nine one one last night. Made a noise complaint. We had our night officer come out here to have a look." This was, what, two, maybe three in the morning? So he hasn't been dead all that long. And uh, it's not pretty in there. Are you sure you want to go in there and still see if it's him? Nathan nods firmly. Yes, it's any way that I can help. And I think I owe it to him, you know? He sighs and runs his hand through his hair and he says... All right, well, follow me. He turns on a heel and steps forward to the house, walks up towards the porch, and then waits for you to basically join him. Nathan is going to walk up to the house, pause for a moment, take a deep breath, and then go up the steps. As you walk up the steps, you can see that the door has been bashed inwards. It has been destroyed, knocked off its hinges, and turned into splinters and shards of wood. Looks like someone might have broken in here with great violent force. The sergeant says to you, So the noise complaint that the neighbors called in about, it started with this. We figure someone must have broken in here at the early hours of the morning. Not quite sure why, but... Well, I think this was more than just a normal break and enter. He gestures for you to follow him as he walks into the kitchen. Nathan follows. Then I would like you to roll me another horror check, please. This time for disgust. Well, that's two minuses. So that's a good start. Um, we have strong stomach acclimation. So that helps. Willpower. That's a five. I'm going to pump in three strains to at least get to a six. With a six, you pass. Standing to lose six preventable sanity damage. This is where your acclimation comes in handy. 
So I am going to use my humanity, bring that down. So I'll pay to humanity in this case. And now I would like you to roll me a temporary insanity check. Oh, two plus ten and a minus. So that's a one. Okay, you hold it together just fine. However, the scene in front of you is not something you would see every day. Eric's body is crumpled amidst what remains of his kitchen table, even though he has been covered by a tarp that has rapidly soaked up what blood he has. You can see that one of the arms sticking out from underneath this plain white cloth is riddled full of strange holes. He appears to have been tossed into a corner of his kitchen with some sort of haphazardness that suggests to you that whoever killed Eric must have killed him without any conscious second thought. Like, whatever it was did this out of instinct, not because they had planned this or were going to do this deliberately. The house itself appears to be in a state of shambles. You can see that there's just blood all over the kitchen. In fact, you're lucky not to step into a puddle of it as you entered. And the police sergeant has his hat off of, well, his head. He's holding it to his chest and he says, When our patrol officer found him, well, according to him, he was filled with so many holes he looked like a sieve. Nathan is going to gulp. There's a voice sounding a little bit hoarse now. What what do you think happened? We don't know, Leighton. There were no signs of gunfire other than what came from his rifle. And he points to the assault rifle that lies on the floor next to his uncovered arm. And he continues, It doesn't look like he was shot from outside, yet all indications seem to point to him being filled full of bullet holes. But if these are really bullet holes... Who fired all the bullets and why? We don't have a motive. Plus, this also fits the M.O. of the two other victims that we found over the last few days. Except, well, Mr. Johnston here, he had a lot more fight in him than the other two. Well, that doesn't surprise me. You know his history. I never think he'd just go down with like that without a fight. Yeah, war veteran, right? They not. Yeah, the type to go down swinging. Look, it's rough, but I think my colleague out there told you that you're going to have to come down to the station with us to answer a couple more questions, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Could you just... Could I just have a second just to... You know, I need to make sure it's him for my own sake. Do you need some privacy? If you could. You can see him think for a minute, and then he nods, puts his hat back on his head, and he says... All right, you have your minute. Do what you need to do, Leighton. And he walks out. All right, so here's the question. To what degree can I use possession in this case? I'm wondering if I can use it to use to get his knowledge, basically, as a skill. Okay, I'll allow it if you can tell me the specific skill that you want to draw from this usage of possession. So the skill I'd want from him is probably his 
tactical skill, like how he defended himself and why he thought he had to defend himself that way. So you wish to use possession to gain ranks in knowledge military. Mm-hmm. What rank is your possession at? My possession is at rank two. So you're going to gain knowledge military at rank S, which basically means the best you can be at being in the military. Oh, yeah, I just turned into Ripley. So what does this look like as Leighton draws in the spirit of their deceased patient and friend, Eric Johnston? Leighton is going to take a deep breath, close their eyes. I'm so sorry, but if there's any way you can tell me what happened, I need to know. And they start hearing their heartbeat. And then there's Eric, just there in the back of their mind. It looks like Eric's silhouette is seated in a cold steel folding chair in the back of your mind, illuminated by a spotlight in a dark room with no windows and no doors. He appears to be covered by a funeral shroud, a pale white cloth that covers his entire body, leaving him just a silhouette on this chair. You know that he's there, and you know that he's dead. And if you were to confront that, maybe you would break. But this is your friend, your patient. He was in your care, and now he's dead. And as you draw his spirit, his conscious, into you, you gain his skills and the reason why he used them. You flash back to a hazy memory, almost as if you were watching it in an old CRT TV on a VHS tape, faded with age. You see someone sitting on a porch, a cigarette in their hand, and a rifle on their lap. You see the person running into this kitchen and upturning a table. And then you see a monster. Veins, muscles, bursting out of its flesh. A feral, quadrupedal beast that doesn't appear to be wholly animal in nature. In fact, its hands, its claws, they look like human hands. Fingernails turned into long, sharp blades. Veins and arteries squirming and writhing like tentacles as they drive themselves into the flesh of the person whose body you are seeing through. You feel, for the briefest of moments, the pain and the agony, and you sense the fear and the desperation, and then everything goes black. This has been Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. A warm thanks to our players tonight. Paxton for playing Elias. Jens for playing Leighton. Be sure to follow the show at Applied Mats on Twitter, and we will return in the next episode. Good night. Rage. Anger. Retribution. And a familial sense of protection towards their home. All these emotions and more course through Leighton as they barrel towards a violent conclusion with a beast from their nightmares. Next time on Hunter and the Hunted Part 3.